0: Welcome to Value Laden, a series where we hear from educational leaders on the role values and principles play in what they do. I am your host, Punya Bishra. My guest today is Jeevan Chanika, the CEO and superintendent of a growing international American school system based in Dubai. Jeevan has also been a teacher, a principal, an active community organizer, artist, and poet. As you can imagine, we had a really interesting time together. So without further ado, let's jump in. Thank you, Jeevan, for joining us for this episode of the value-laden podcast. Maybe you can just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, and we'll just sort of dig into how you got to this point of where you bring these perspectives uh, that you do.
1: Thanks for having me. Um, I'm currently the CEO superintendent uh, at uh, a growing international school system, Uh, the Blueprint uh, School being in Dubai and we're expanding out into other countries. So I was hired to be able to sort of um, mold the image of what that could look like, to think about policies, to think about uh, innovation and transformation in education, what that could look like and to help it grow. Prior to that, I was the Superintendent of Equity, Anti-Racism and Anti-Oppression in Toronto District School Board. And in, in Canada, Toronto is the largest school district. Uh, we were serving approximately 250,000 students uh, with approximately 40,000 staff in over 600 schools. So it was fairly sizable and highly complex K to 12 system. As education is everywhere, it's highly complex. In my own journey, I mean, um, let me start with, so I was born in Canada. Uh, we moved. Uh, my parents are from Trinidad. They, they moved back there. So I grew up there. I went to a Hindu elementary school and a Catholic secondary school. Half of my family is Hindu. The other half is Christian. I became Muslim somewhere along the way. You know, it was very uh, normal for us to celebrate everything because it was in our family. You know, when I think uh, about how we grew up, Uh, you know, very simply, but we were happy. Like I never would have used the word poor or lower middle class or any of that language. There were times we didn't have things or we didn't get things that we wanted. And there were times that we did. And, you know, um, we were far better off than some people for sure. Um, I moved back uh, to Canada when I was about 18 um, for school. And during that time, there was a period where, um, I, was, I became part of um, what's classed as the hidden homeless. Couch surfing, not having somewhere was intermittent. Um, I very much depended on food banks. I didn't have enough money to get me through. I was managing three jobs to get through. Uh, along the way, I also, uh, during my university career, uh, where I had to take significant loans to be able to go to university, I had lived overseas. I lived in Egypt for a year where I was the not an uh, Arabic-language speaker. So I very much learned what it was like to be a second-language speaker in a, um, a culture that was very different uh, with a language I had very little familiarity with. Eventually, I became a parent of um, children, two of whom uh, had um, individual education plans because they had, they had learning disabilities. I'm also racially mixed. So, um, you know, there's black, brown, and indigenous all inside of me. And I have the experiences with my children, with my boys in particular, one who looks pretty much South Asian and the other one who looks pretty much black. And so, you know, it's been interesting navigating their experiences, especially experiences of policing, you know, when they were both uh, in high school. My younger son, who um, there's no there's no mistaking that his blackness and, um, you know, one day was out on his job where he was doing door to door sales with a team in his uniform with his ID you know, had the police called on him and had four cruisers of police pull up on him, you know, dealing again with, you know, me helping him to navigate because of other experiences of police being called on him. And, And recognizing, you know, the differences that I have as somebody who's racialized brown, right? And him as a young black man and what that means for him. Even though I may have all those things in me, right? I don't experience the world the way he does. Apart from my education work, I have a background in social co- work and community work, uh, meaning I was doing community work, at community counseling, um, you know, uh, and so spend spent a lot of time with kids who were struggling and in distress. I remember going through the Faculty of Education as a teacher candidate, and everything, the standard basis of everything that we learned was white. And I just sat there and I thought, I don't see me re- being reflected in here. I don't see the children that we serve being reflected in here. I don't even see the basis of understanding to help teachers understand what does it mean to actually create inclusive spaces for children? And, and how do we navigate our own identities in relation to the children that we serve? So, you know, later on, when I would become a teacher, it was really easy for me to have a prayer mat in the corner for my muslim kids so whenever they needed to pray they would pray or it took you know when i would be in early i had a student a hindu student who would come in 15 minutes early every morning and he would just sit there and meditate and by himself and he was a child who just needed that and without it i could see the difference in his day
0: one of the things that i always find interesting is you know and then then you talked about sort of growing up hindu with family who were hindu christian Yourself, you know, choosing to be Muslim. I wonder how, um, and this is always intriguing to me personally because you know I was brought up Hindu, but at a very early age I sort of like uh, I'm done with this whole thing, and um, and then I just wonder about like where do my sort of values and stuff come from, and it is I look back and it's my dad, and so I'm just curious about how what role did these different things play, and how you sort of sort of look back and say oh this is how I see this perspective forming, right? Because there is a, a way of looking at the world, which is very rich and nuanced, but I just want to sort of see how, how you think about how that came to be, how those different pieces played out.
1: I think um, identity formation is interesting because one would hope that it's evolutionary, that it's constantly evolving, especially if we develop a really good reflective practice in our lives and i would say that through the the many differences that existed within my family and even in the way that i believe things over time you know i had the opportunity to see people who were really very dogmatic about what they believe and, and being, you know sort of very defined borders around like this is you know right and wrong and this is what it should be etc and then see where it was more fluid but because i'm sort of at the intersections of so many of those one of the things that i was able to really over time was able to see the many common threads that actually exist and so it's it's been very easy for me to be able to look at the things that make us similar versus the things that make us different while at the same time Not washing away the existence of systems that actually operate in a way that harms particular peoples.
0: Right. You know, I mean, I I give the analogy of COVID 19, you know, that the, the virus doesn't care skin color, religion, background, nothing, right? It doesn't care. It will infect you come what may. However, the impact of the virus is very different on different groups within our society and they reflect. Those gaps and chasms that are there. So that, to me, is like has been sort of sort of an interesting metaphor to use, to that. How do you sort of understand that these gaps are there? Because here is something which is absolutely neutral; it doesn't care who it comes across, but the impact is felt very differently depending on who and where you are.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that COVID, you know, has done is it's exposed those gaps. I mean, the folks who've been in the gaps have always said that those gaps are and we live in gaps and they exist and these are the challenges but one of the things that people being stuck in their homes and being forced to have to deal with things um and that you know period of time where we were sort of like locked down it caused people to have to like really think about things you couldn't just pass it off. And so that's been an interesting thing. And the other thing that I would say is uh, the way that it's, it's sort of like these coming with these many different belief systems that have sort of like become intertwined in who I've become today is uh, my deep value and belief in what public education can do, you know, and I would say that public secular education system is exactly what we need to be able to ensure uh, or to work towards a level playing field for all kids. However, you know, there are people who believe that public secular education means do not bring your belief systems in here, do not bring your values and your identities in here. That's not what a secular democratic society was ever intended to do right and a secular democratic society and the basis of which should be a a strong public education system should be bring all of who you are and know that you deserve to be at the table and no one can tell you otherwise and then what then needs to happen is the basis of what is consultation and collaboration through brave conversations need to look like so that we can all Sit in the space and know that we belong there fully.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I have the story of uh, one of my son's friends who was also Indian origin. This is in Michigan. Got into a deep theological argument. They're in first grade with another kid. I mean, it's fascinating. So they get into that argument about whether there is one God or there are lots of gods. Because this guy's coming from the Hindu tradition where like, lots of gods and this kid's coming from a monotheistic tradition. And so who do they go to to judge the truth of these two claims? They go to the teacher and she's a first year teacher and has no experience on what to do with this, you know, and I just find that example so fascinating. And I used to do these sessions with uh, you know, pre-service teachers and I would go in and I'd say that You're gonna, you have my kids in your class. And they are being brought up in this really weird household where the mother is sort of devout Hindu and the father is an atheist. And they are trying to figure that out. And they're going to be in your classroom. What are you going to do with them when they ask a question?
1: It's a growing reality, right? More and more kids are third culture kids because more and more families are blended for what, like in, in so many different ways, right? and then you know with technology they're being exposed to way more than they have in the past right you know this idea that we can build some sort of like cocoon and sort of hide them is is problematic we because we can't and we won't
0: but i'm going to go back to one more question to the past and then we can look to the you know i want to talk a lot more about sort of the educational transformational work you've been doing but there is uh, uh, there are lots of people who have had sort of the diverse experiences that you've had. There are lots of people who have thought about their own identity and so on. But there is a move here, which I think that you did at some point in your life where there is a sense of sort of activism to change, to be at the forefront of this, to be a part of these dialogues more than just sort of listening to the dialogues. So I want to understand, was there like, Antecedents in your family or something that you saw that sort of nudged you or pushed you in that direction that that seemed to be a valid way to go right
1: yeah i mean for whatever reason and i think part of it had to do with my parents who in their own ways uh would speak up and and stand up for various issues from quite young i had always been the kind of kid that would stand up and speak up on issues. And now I remember, you know, when I was, because I was in the British system form six, which is the equivalent uh, that's A-levels or sort of like, after grade 12 or grade 13 when it used to exist being in catholic school and disagreeing with an incident how an incident of bullying was handled and started a petition against the fathers in the um in my catholic school and being sort of like pulled into the dean's office and saying like what are you doing Better, you better um, stop this or you won't be coming back here next. Or they literally were trying to threaten me and um, to make me be silent. And I said, um, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to stop. I never asked my parents for permission to be that way, right? Uh, so um, that sort of like morphed into me, um, you know, at the age of 16, having a column in the newspaper but speak about issues from, from as, a, as a young person on all kinds of different things and sort of like share what my perspective was. You know, over, over time that, you know, once I moved back here and I started doing work uh, that was very community-based and grassroots-oriented, and I think this is one of the ways where, um, you know, even for me from a faith perspective, like my understanding of Islam was such that it was like, you see something wrong, then change it with your hands. And if not, then change it with your mouth. And if not, then at least hate it with your heart. But that's the weakest form of faith. And so there was a lot of times opening up my mouth, you know, and then, you know, uh, you know, always sort of like on the front lines. You know, recently on social media, because I was at a, a march for Black students so just happened uh, the other day, somebody was asking me on social media, like, you're the head of an organization, right? Or you've been a senior leader in education now. Don't you get in trouble for, like, doing these things? And I I thought about that. I didn't actually answer them, um, but they, it made me pause to think. And the truth is I've never asked for permission to do those things. I mean, it's it, you know, when I went into my interview, you know, uh, one of the decisions I made at... Um, and that point was you know if they're hiring me they need to hire me for who i am not like i'm not going to pretend and and i'm making a distinction between pretending and navigating because navigating is different but i needed them to know like this is who i am and so you know i was very clear i said you know i don't believe in doing things to community i believe that we do things with community and that there's nothing about us without us we will only solve these problems if we really engage community at the table. Otherwise there will be no solution. Right. Um, And I remember leaving the interview, like I said, all these different things and um, and I left and I called my mentor and I said to her, I said, um, you know, they're not going to hire me. And she said to me, uh, why, you know, and I said, because I was brutally honest in my interview. I said this, I said this. I said... <laughs> and she said, well, let's just leave it and see. Right. And so when they called, you know, the call came and it was the, at the time, um, uh, associate director calling to say, hi, Jiwan. Uh, you know, I'm calling to let you know you got the job. And I, I said to him, pardon me. And he said to me, uh, you know, I'm letting you know you got the job. And I said to him, okay. And he said, why do you sound surprised? And I said, I honestly didn't think I was going to get this job. And he said, no, you had an excellent interview. And I said, okay, all right. You know, often I'm in spaces where I'm maybe the only sort of like senior educator not the, only, or, you know, sort of speaking. Um, and I would say there's just only a handful of us who have maintained those connections to community and have been doing that work alongside community, we haven't stopped.
0: Uh, I think we have sort of a little bit of a shift we've already taken about like how you approach the work that you do. And so let's talk a little bit, I mean, this is like, as a, a leader, so one of these pieces you talked about was, you know, that you can be, out there protesting while you're also doing this work you know leading this team so there is a sort of attention there but i think that the question i always ask is like i have a certain set of values or whatever i, I bring to the world and to the work that i do and clearly i think they're right just as everybody else does things about theirs um uh, and since so once you come into an organizational space and there is the pressure of performing or getting things done and how do the, how do you navigate those because these are you know and especially education is such a contested space too right education identity schooling all of these are politically very contested as well so how do you approach this sort of working with teams and because i th- I think what happens is often in the earth we need to get things done some of these conversations fall by the wayside or or they don't get the attention that they deserve
1: um you know there's a there's a few things i'm um, I- I've experienced not only in education in multiple spaces, this notion of like, I have these values and I think they're right. Um, One of the things that I've learned over time is that they might be right for me but not be right for someone else. Somewhere along the way of doing this work, critical self-reflective practice that is grounded in humility and understanding that what is right for me may not be right for someone else um, is an important thing. I think the second thing is the the pieces connected to identity. And I would say that though we share the same world, we don't share the same experiences of the world. And so, um, you know, for example, this is 2020, This when we're doing this interview right now, we're still having conversations about girls going into STEM and STEAM. Why is that? Why is it even though we've had a deliberate focus on helping girls to maybe see themselves as beyond how they have traditionally been told, why is it we're still having those barriers? Why is it when we look at which kids are overrepresented in, in achievement and well-being gaps, they're overrepresented by particular groups of kids children? And the thing that I where I start from is how do we approach leadership? And so for me, my stance is very much a service-oriented leader um, that is tied to goals and accountability. So let's look at it this way. I believe I'm here to serve. I have have, um, values that guide me. And just as my values guide me, other people's values guide them. We don't need to compete. This is not a soapbox, nor is it the oppression Olympics to prove who's hurt more than the other but it is a recognition that the systems do not serve all children equally. And when I say that, one of the things that I say is that this is not to say we're trying to help the kids who are being successful not be successful anymore. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to say those kids deserve success and so do the rest of the children. So then how then are we going to begin to think about differently the things that we do. Because if we keep doing what we've always done, we will keep getting what we've always gotten. And so, you know, the, the the reality is we need to change things. How do we begin by understanding that education has actually never served these groups of children? And so if we can begin with that truth, that it actually has never served them, then the question then becomes, what is it that we need to do differently? How might we lead differently? right to be able to do it so that's one one part of it and then the other part of it is who am I in the relation to in relation to the people that I serve well, let me use the last example I went in and I had an interview and I was honest in my interview but there's pieces of privilege that I have that allows me to be heard differently as I'm somebody with male privilege as somebody with cisgender privilege, as somebody with able-bodied privilege, as somebody with middle-class privilege, um, you know, we can go down that list, right? There are things that allows what I'm saying that other people will have to fight one more or two or three more times harder to be able to be heard the same way. So how do we, um, you know, me as a uh, cisgendered person who has to make decisions on behalf of trans-identifying children? There are things I will never understand. Never, ever, ever. As much as I read and I learn and I do. Um, But I am making decisions on behalf of trans children. And the data on trans children is heartbreaking, you know, in terms of graduation, in terms of suicide, in terms of homelessness, in terms of drug addiction. And like, we could go down that list, right? If I'm not constantly aware of who I am in the moment of making those decisions, I could be going back to what my normal is, what my values are, how I've lived in this world, without recognizing that I'm actually doing something harmful. My big message is that education systems have to be held accountable for identity-based outcomes. So everyone will tell you that they care about all kids. I might say, yeah, you might think you care about all kids, But the data is telling us something else. And if you truly care about all kids, then what is it that we need to do differently? And how are we going to be transparent to community and accountable for outcomes, which is in all professions the standard? But somehow in education, we feel like we don't need to be accountable or transparent. There's a part of the shift in education leadership that that needs to happen around humility around vulnerability around saying i don't know um, around not seeing community as the problem uh, but seeing community as part of the solution we talk a lot about being positive but we're very deficit oriented as a sector we we label kids based on what they're deficient or considered to be at risk as opposed to where their strengths are um, and um, and and we do that to educators as well. So the the thing is, how do we begin to shift that? One of the things that we've um, we've uh, you know been trying to talk about up here is uh, equity as a leadership competency, and really explicitly talking about it that way. Sure,
0: that's so resonant with all the other you know sort of the conversations. So one of the things that you know. Uh, when people talk about school, there is, you know, it's reading, writing, math. It's like they need to be prepared for the jobs of the future. And, uh, you know, if you spend too much time on these touchy feely kind of things, we uh, are going to lose, you know, you see what I'm saying, right? I'm not speaking for myself. I'm speaking for a hypothetical straw man here. Uh, but that is an issue that does come up.
1: It's actually not hypothetical at all. I mean, we um, typically in education keep going to, Uh, you know, straight white men, you know, who have some amount of educational scholarship, but they see equity as a distraction because their belief is the work is achievement and well-being. Um, And it was less well-being. It's only recently that well-being has started factoring in the conversation. But here's why that's false. And it, it goes back to that, you know, when you come to work every day, you don't check who you are at the door. You come in with a series of experiences that you experience all the way there. Let's use black children as an example. They're not safe in their bedrooms. They're not safe under porches. They're not safe in in their front yards or their backyards, walking to school. And so they're being bombarded with all this messaging and all these realities that are very different than, for example, me or others. And they're walking with that. Let's take a Muslim girl wearing hijab. And then what is what are the things that they have to deal with? Let's take a, uh, a Black, Muslim, queer child with disabilities, right? Coming out of poverty. And just think about the layers of compounding oppression that they have to navigate through. When they come to school, well-intended, nice educators who aren't holding themselves accountable, who aren't saying, wait a minute, I have privilege in these things, right? That's where they start doing things. Well, you know, we need to have an in-school team about this young black girl. And then they start coming up with solutions like, well, maybe she needs to like relax her hair because, you know, her hair is really untidy and that's making people treat her badly. Or maybe, you know, um, those sick boys who are being targeted because of their patkas or their turbans, right? Um, If they just took it off and they were normal. So what schooling is becoming is an erasure of identity, right? So then you start thinking about what are the books we're using? What are the texts that we share? Who are the people who come in to tell the stories? Where are the field trips that we're taking them on? All these things are just erase, 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 erase. When we tell the story, here's another one. We're teaching about achievement and well-being. Well, yeah, we're still teaching that Columbus discovered uh, North America. Well, guess what? When he got here, there were millions of people living there. So you discover a place where there's millions of people, and that's legitimate history, and nobody's questioning that. That's a problem. And so if you're an Indigenous child in that space, where you're constantly being erased, how are you supposed to be successful?
0: I hear you completely. Just a couple of last sort of thoughts here. So I wanted to talk, uh, you to talk a little bit about what you're planning to do in this new, you know, the schools that you are set up. So maybe that, but also how do you keep sort of fresh and keep learning? How do you do that? And then what are your plans for sort of what you're thinking of doing uh, in this new role that you have in these
1: schools? I think one of the things that I've done over the years is I've, um, Kept really good critical friends around me. And by critical friends, I don't mean the kind of friends who are just going to say, Oh, no, you said it, so it must be right. But the kind of friends who will basically say to you, Yeah, no, we're not sure why you're saying that because you're not like you're missing something there, you know? And typically, when I would have um, big decisions that I need to make, I would go to my critical friends and say, Here's a scenario, here's a decision that I need to make, I need to make sure that none of my own privileges are getting in the way or that I might be missing something that I'm not yet aware of. And honestly, um, that has been one thing uh, that's been significant because the people I keep around me will call me out on stuff, but I also know they care about me. So it's not they're calling me out to like make fun of me or insult me. They're trying to help me recognize that, you know, yo, you might be missing something here. With regards to what the future looks like for me, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Um, I took on this job um, in Dubai, uh, because it's sort of like growing the potential for an international district one school at a time. COVID has definitely presented some challenges there the the work that I've been involved in um, recently though around inclusive design has been around how do we begin to reimagine schooling reimagine schooling from a transformative place and in a way that is not that is addressing issues of oppression of colonization um, bringing up the conversations around privilege but not from a place of blame shame or guilt but from here's what, you need to understand in a post-colonial world where these structures come from that the legislation isn't neutral that we've not been able there is no district anywhere that has been able to systemically over time change outcomes for these groups of children and so if that is the case how might we use that as an opportunity to reimagine education? And that's where inclusive design was born from. And what I'm finding, and I've now been, I've spoken to thousands of educators, uh, you know, and I'm finding that once we, you know, lay things out, using this inclusive design approach, that even those who hold the most privilege are coming up um, to us and saying, "I didn't necessarily." think I was going to agree with you, but I know we need to do something differently now. And it's starting them on that journey. And I think you know, the, the thing, the one piece that I you know, kind of want to make sure is, though change may take time, because it's a policy piece and an attitudes and behavior piece, that we do not hold children hostage to the fragility of adult emotions. So yes, change may take time, but it's also urgent. We can't continue to lose generations of Indigenous, Black, POC children, kids with disabilities, 2 LGBT kids, kids coming out of poverty. And, you know, when you have these conversations about privilege, you know, inevitably, you know, people will bring up the race pieces because it factors strongly through it. But when I talk about poverty, I also talk about the white poor. And I will often ask in those rooms, who's speaking for the white poor? Because it's not not the wealthy white folks, right? Um, And so how do we make sure that those children also have a chance to be able to be successful? So I think that this shift to inclusive design, uh, for us, what we're seeing is that there's huge potential for systems because it's built in such a way that a teacher can use it in their classroom, a school can use it. To articulate school improvement, but a system can structure around it and then begin to shift things by centering the most marginalized voices.
0: So one of the fun things that I get to do with this podcast is I get to chat with Jennifer Stein, one of our producers, about the particular episode. So, hey, Jennifer.
2: Hi there. So what do you think? As always, these are interesting conversations. I think I I always particularly like hearing about some of the the early you know memories and influences in people's in in people's lives, like their uh, the influence of their families or, or what they did when they were a kid. One of the ones he mentions that Juwan mentions that I that I liked was about when he was in middle school and he started the petition against the the fathers at his Catholic school because of the way they were treating some you know some incident. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a, a yeah. fun story.
0: Yeah, I mean you can see like who he grew up to be at you know in that little you know example there, right? So it, it, this this sort of activism and engagement goes back. A long way in his case. And and I think that's what's like really interesting to me about Jeevan, like how he manages to both be this sort of an activist around equity and, and race and so on, while being you now leading an organize an educational organization, which often is part of the systemic problems that we are talking about, and how he manages to be honest in both of those spaces. Uh, I just find that very, very inspiring and, and like just amazing, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. And you really see that when he talks about um, interviewing for, I forget which job it was, but but one of his positions and being convinced that he wasn't going to get the job because he was so honest and then he, he was selected for the job. Um, and that speaks to the point you just made.
0: That reminds me of a conversation uh, with Sean Lesher where he talks about that it's better that you have this difficult conversation before you you know, apply for a position, like you know, when you're being interviewed rather than at the end when they are firing you, right? And so I think it's sort of the similar theme uh, here, which is be upfront about these principles and values and what you are deeply passionate about. And if that aligns with the organization, then, you know, but if you hide it or try to sugarcoat it, you know, and then the mismatch comes out in the open, that's actually a bigger problem. So yeah, and that's I think that that kind of honesty again seems to be a hallmark of these these conversations as well. You know, maintaining that that your values even when you feel like that might be detrimental to, to you career wise and so on, but because it's important to do so that these are important things that we need to keep our eyes on.
2: Yeah, and in G1's case, he he really foregrounds issues of identity and equity and racism and you can see in the way he talks so compellingly that 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 he really is seeing equity as being like the foremost issue that as an education leader he needs to to take on and and that really comes through in the conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing that you know I feel bad about that we never got to talk about is his poetry. I mean, he's actually a published poet. I mean, you can go online and see some of his poems. So I mean, that's again another thing I think that comes out across all these conversations is These multifaceted ways in which people are trying to address these issues, right? It's not a unit, like a single way of approaching something as complicated as equity. And speaking of identity, I mean, Jeevan has like, what, seven or eight possible identities that he could pick up, given where he came from, his religious background and his religious upbringing and the multiple influences on his life. And I think that's increasingly the world we live in, though that's increasingly going to be the population of students we'll be working with. And respecting that, honoring that for what it is and the strength that it brings to our educational system, to our communities and our world, I think is another very important thing that G1 sort of both embodies and speaks to.
2: Mm -hmm. Yep. And and he doesn't, it's not only his own experiences, but through his children as well.
0: That's right. You know,
2: that the part of the perspective he has gained is. Seeing his um, the experiences that his kids have had in the world,
0: yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that it's fascinating. This has been so much fun having this conversation. I mean, I would have never had a chance to have such an extended conversation with somebody like G1, right? Um, and I think we went covered a lot of ground. And and you know, you're right. I mean, it's it's both what made them who they are, and then how they take what they have become into their their professional lives. Um, I think it's just a, just a wonderful journey to watch that, you know, to listen to that.
2: Um. So who's the next guest?
0: Next guest is Sonia Gunnings-Moten. She's a really close friend. I've known her for years and years. We were at Michigan State together, did a lot of work together. She is this amazing, fearless leader, always has sort of the deep commitment to the disenfranchised or the disadvantaged. And what... Is interesting is like her sort of understanding of how systems work and how systems need to be changed uh, is something that we we talk I think uh, quite a bit about and you know she is hilarious as a person uh, so it's 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 going to be a fun conversation so that's all for now till next time thank you for listening to value laden be sure to check out the show notes for more information and see you next time
2: Value Laden is produced at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Executive producers are Dr. Sean Leahy and Claire Gilbert. The show is produced by Jennifer Stein and Enrique Borges. Research was conducted by Shagoon Singa. A special thank you to Elizabeth Mirabal for her coordination of interviews and overall support. Audio production provided by Claire Gilbert.